Welcome back to the Truths and Gratitude podcast. This is Brooke, and this is our Woven series written by Angie Smith. We're diving into this book together for a six-part series to see that the Bible is not just a book with random stories in it, but it's one seamless story. It all goes together. And so we're going to dive into this book during our six-part series, seeing God's love and God's redemption plan played out. So I hope you're ready to dive in. Hey there, welcome back to the Truths and Gratitude podcast. This is Brooke and we are doing the Woven series. In fact, I thought that we were supposed to be wrapping up this entire series with this final podcast episode, but I will say that the material that we're covering for the next three chapters is quite lengthy considering the fact that we have only gotten to the book of John um, in the New Testament through this podcast episode. And we have um, the rest of the New Testament to finish as well as the big finish, the way that she ends this book. Um, Elisa Childers, she says the big finish, um, which of course is Revelation, which brings about a lot of questions from people. So I I actually want to dedicate just our grand finale with Revelation as well as just signing off this entire series with one more bonus podcast episode. So this one will not be our last, but it is second to last. So you've probably been waiting for a little while for this podcast episode to come out. We have been super busy with school beginning as well as just all things fall. I hope that you're enjoying uh, your fall season. If you're listening to this podcast episode during the fall, if you're not, I hope you're still enjoying the weather, whatever season it may be in your life. But let's go ahead and recap. We're going to recap from our last podcast episode and it was all about about. We saw a lot of kings rise and fall in the Old Testament. We also see that prophets come on the scene. The prophets are basically to warn about decisions that are made that would lead to uh, destruction. The decisions that and the choices that the people are making, uh, they had a choice to make and yet they chose to continue to go down the path of destruction. Um, And the thing with that is with those warnings that they gave, um, God followed through on his warnings through his prophets. He's he's like, okay, you're not going to do what I say. I'm still going to follow through. So we see that happen. Um, And then we still see God uh, being the God of giving them yet again another chance and bringing them back. And that vicious cycle of like, God forgiving, and then the people are good for a little while, and then they start venturing off and doing their own thing and not wanting to do what God says, and he warns them and sends his prophets to warn them, and then we just see this cycle take over, over, and over, and we see also that cry for help. Um, And so the rescue plan, uh, God has had this rescue plan all the way since the very beginning of this book and the beginning in the Old Testament. He's had this rescue plan because it's this vicious cycle that is happening over and over. And that's really important to note and just kind of kind of pick up on is the fact that us as human beings, um, we just, we're creatures of habit, but also we just, we don't get it right. If you remember way back, um, back in the, uh, just during the Exodus chapter, it, Elisa lays out this cycle for us. She says it happens again and again. The people cry out to him. He hears their cries for help. He remembers his covenant and his promise to them, and he moves to rescue them. Um, and so this rescue plan he's always had along um, the whole way, and this rescue plan has always pointed us to the Gospels, to a man who didn't fit the social construct or look like a quote-unquote savior or look like a quote-unquote hero, but who would be bring about a, cult, um, a really countercultural love and a new order of doing things. 
Um, and of course, we're speaking about Jesus Christ. And he worked in a team with 12 men, redefining what relationships look like with God um, and really making it about um, the relationship, making it relational versus legalism. You know, I've heard a lot lately, um, just the word like, I'm re- like I'm religious or they're not religious or, or however you want to put it. And the thing with Christianity is like, we need to kind of, I personally feel like we need to get that, that phrase out of our vocabulary. Uh, I'm not religious or I am religious or whatever, right? We need to, we need to venture more to relational. I'm more relational with God. I have a relationship with God versus talking about these blocks that we have to check in order to really meet the religious or the Christian mold, if that makes sense. And so Jesus really, really kind of flipped everything on its head and just tried to show like, hey, this is the way that it should be done. Um, And really spoke about just matters from the heart, the heart, heart issues that were going on and all of that. And so we see all of this taking place in the New Testament. And in chapter 12 of this book, Woven, um, the title is called Like He Always Said He Would. This is about the cross and the resurrection and everything that Jesus did in his three years of ministry. Everything was in preparation for this very week. Um, all over people call it Semana Santa or Holy Week. You also will hear Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And and there's a lot of people during this time who will do certain rituals, praying, fasting, over-the-top worship services, whatever you will. Um, this is a really special week. Um, it's the most one of the most sacred weeks in the history of the world is how Elisa describes it. And um, all of the recorded events that lead up to, she says, his, triumph entry, his triumphant infant, uh, entry into the city through his crucifixion to his resurrection and beyond, these are in uh, these chapters. So Matthew 21 through 28, Mark 11 through 16, Luke 19 through 24, and John 12 through 21. So in order to really fully understand what is going on during this Holy Week, you can find it there in those chapters. And um, just some examples of this is um, riding the donkey into town, flipping tables in the temple, um, the withered fig tree story, the teachings in the temple, um, the conspiracy of the priest, the Last Supper, and then the betrayal of Judas. So all of this is going on um, during this week. Um, So this is the rescue plan though. This has all been planned out and now it is finally playing out. So the thing about um, Holy Week, if you're not familiar with this, is Holy Week consists of obviously Sunday to Sunday. You have Palm Sunday, which this represents the Sunday before Easter. And this is all coming from the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem um, into, into um, into the city and the really cool thing about this uh, particular story is that, um, number one, a prophecy was given about a savior coming in on a colt or on a donkey to come into um, into the city. But not only that, um, when the people saw him and they saw this prophecy being fulfilled, the thing about it was, was that um, you may be thinking, why a donkey? Well, back in that time, during that time, um, when someone was coming in on a horse, all right, you're, that was more of a symbol of like military, um, also like, um, like a war going off to battle, that kind of thing. That's why it's depicted in revelation about Christ coming back 
on a white horse um, to come back and to um, to put the world back in order. But in, if you saw someone um, who was coming in on a donkey, that was served for the most high king. The most high king um, and, and the king who's who's already been successful and who's already won. And so it was very awesome that just that correlation um, and that deeper meaning of Christ coming in on a donkey. He is the most high king. He's already won. Um, so that is what Palm Sunday is all about. The, they laid the palm branches down onto the ground as he crossed over them to come into the city. Uh, Maundy Thursday is what they call it. M-A-U-N-D-Y Thursday. This is before Easter. This is the time of the Last Supper. And this is also the time of the foot washing story. Um, and sometimes you will have an overnight candle vigil. Uh, that might be something that some people do during this time. Good Friday, this day, this was the day that Jesus was crucified. If you're confused on why it's called Good Friday, um, if you know the song, it is uh, Friday's good because Sunday's coming. So the plan has, has he has done the work. He's done the thing that, that was supposed to be done. Um, and we all know that he's coming back. And we it's a good, good Friday because we know that a good Sunday is coming. Um, you have Holy Saturday, which Jesus is in the tomb. And then you have Easter Sunday, um, which is the day of his resurrection. So everything that he did led up to this week. Um, and it was, it's very important. I think that as you are going through Easter week or Easter Sunday, um, that you, you really reflect on that, not just on that Sunday, but also on each day. Um, so one, one interesting thing that the Elisa points out is that Jesus told his men plainly, like clear as day, that he was going to be rejected, he was going to have to suffer, he'd be killed and all that, and then he would rise again. And here's the thing, like, he said it, but then nobody, his men were, they they were not having it. They really didn't understand, they didn't completely understand what was going on. They didn't really want to take it in as well. Um, And you have the story of Peter, um, who was like, you know, Christ, what, what are you talking about? You, you're not going to do this. And, and Jesus actually tells him, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And again, that is not speaking to Peter directly. That is speaking to just the, um, ju- just the spirit of, of the spirit of them saying he can't do it. Um, and so it, it was, it was like a, a, re- a rebuke to Jesus. Like, you know, um, you're not going to do this. And Jesus is like, you can't tell me what I'm going to (laughs) do. So that is what that is all about. So moving right along, we come to, um, a little tidbit about one interesting tidbit that Elisa mentions is that, um, they mention and they talk about the story of Lazarus. Now this is obviously not happening during Holy week, but, She's mentioning here that his miracles, Jesus' miracles never failed. And, um, and, and there was one in particular where Jesus had raised someone from the dead, and that was his friend Lazarus. And she mentioned, she says, one interesting tidbit here is that Jesus waited four days after Lazarus died before he came back, which must have seemed really cruel. It was very deliberate on his part, though. And you may have heard this um, 
you know, pastors talk about this before and, but I've never heard it put this way. It says here that people at that time thought the spirit of a person could hover around him for three days and at any point bring him back to life. Jesus waited until the fourth day to ensure that everyone knew Lazarus was actually dead. So this is pretty cool. Um, because Mary and Martha from that particular story, um, they are the ones that are anointing him before he goes on to to be sacrificed. They are the ones that are anointing him with expensive perfume and just anointing him before he goes on to to do the thing that he's supposed to do, anointing his feet. And um and, and so it's just very interesting. I hadn't I had never heard that before that they were also part of that story of raising being raised from the dead. So really they've been part of two stories, two big stories of Jesus being resurrected, but also and, and preparing him for that, but also seeing Lazarus, their brother, being raised from the dead. And so um very interesting story. So once again, he comes riding into the city and that prophecy is being fulfilled. Like I said, the horse is symbolized for war, but the donkeys is the most high king. They're the symbols of peace and they're used to enact treaties. And so they see him coming into the town and during this week, it's a very busy week. It's Passover week. So again, Passover is that celebration that is from the story of Exodus where, um, where the death would, would pass over the homes that had the, the blood that was smeared from the lamb. And so just, you know, God, you know, saving those people, it was a celebration that they had. And so one thing about Jewish culture is they have a celebration for everything. And so this is a big one though. So Passover week is when everyone would be coming into town to celebrate, um, this, um, the special celebration. And so he's now coming in as well. And the thing about this that I've heard said is that, you know, during these big celebrations as well, and with these big holidays, the Roman guards are very much on the edge um, during these times. Why is that? Well, because they're used to riots and other things that had happened in the past um, and, and and just kind of like uh, people who are coming up against that that Roman authority. And so the Roman guards are already on edge because they need to be, you know, prepared for those types of things because it's a big holiday. A lot of the Jewish people are coming in to celebrate. And so they're there. They're supposed to be on guard to keep control. Um, and the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're there as well to keep order and to make sure that everyone is following tradition and custom, all right? So you have everybody is there in their place doing what they're supposed to be doing, and then who do you have? You have Jesus Christ coming in to turn everything upside down, um, and with a huge following. He's got all these people who are laying down palm leaves and palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You know, this is our Savior. This is the one that the prophets, that the prophets have spoken of, and this is not, everyone was not happy about this. This, this creates problems. Who does it create problems for? It creates problems for the Romans because you got the Jewish people who are, you know, you know, you got a big following, you got a big crowd and, you know, they're, they're kind of doing their own thing. And then it also causes problems for the people like the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they're there to keep the custom and the tradition going of the Passover holiday, making sure everybody is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And yet here during this very special time, someone is coming in who is claiming that they are the Messiah um, and who who is there 
sent straight from God. And he has a large following that's saying the same exact thing. And this causes a problem for the people. So we'll see how that plays out, obviously, for um, later on down the road. But we come to the story of the Last Supper. And one thing that I really love about this particular story is the fact that everyone um, is there for the Last Supper, including Judas. Judas is there as well. And at this Last Supper, what does Jesus do? One of the very first things that he does is he washes all of their feet, including Judas. Even though he knew... Um, even though he knew what was going to happen during that last supper and the hours and the day to follow, he still did it, which is crazy to me that he still washed their feet. He still bent down and, and, and did this very, and and humbled himself in front of the very man who would turn his back on him. And so the bread was torn, just like his body, the wine was poured, um, which represented his blood. And so this is called communion. If you're not familiar with that, um, many churches will take communion sometimes regularly, or just depending on your denomination or your church, they may do it for a special time. But the reason why we do it, and we are, we are told to do it by Jesus to continue to do it so that we will never forget. We'll never forget what Jesus did for us on the cross, the breaking of his body, the bread and the the pouring of his wine, the blood. It is a it is a physical reminder and representation of what Christ did for us um, during that holy week. So um, Judas is named the traitor. All right. So he is the traitor. But the thing is, is one thing that she mentions is that uh, the thing about Judas is that you know, he did turn his back on Christ. But this man had been the man that, um, you know, had traveled with them for three years and who had watched Christ, you know, perform these miracles and heal people and, and, and seen groups of people flock to him. And, and Elisa says, the thing is, it's easy just to say Judas, the traitor without digging down another few layers, because, the thing is, is that Judas was a true friend. He was a true friend to many of the disciples. And she said, think about that for a second. Think about the fact that all these men knew each other. They knew about each other's lives. They knew, she even says they knew who snored and who had a hard childhood. They crossed miles and step with one another, always as a pact. And so, yes, Jesus was God, yes, but he was also a man. He was part of a group and Jesus um, is about to be betrayed by the very man who was very, very close to them. So what happens? Uh, Judas turns him in and Jesus is hauled off into the night um, and they had overnight hearings. And so, um, you know, I think about the story about how, you know, that all of the Jews, you know, it must have been all of the Jews that turned their back on him. You know, you hear the story of like the Jews who are celebrating the fact that, you know, he's being taken to the cross, but that's I I can imagine that's probably not entirely true because these hearings are going on. And so the crowds of people who had shouted Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest had no idea that these hearings were going on in the middle of the night when Jesus was hauled off and being beaten and all of that. Um, They had no idea that these hearings were happening. It was in the middle of the night. They were asleep. Um, So Jesus was basically sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, Judas had turned him in and, and, and in return, um, they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And the thing is, is that Judas felt 
so bad about it at, at a certain point um, that he tried to get it back to the priest. And then they wouldn't take it. They wouldn't take it back. Um, and so Judas threw the coins um, at the priest. And so the priest couldn't put it back in the temple treasury because it was quote unquote blood money. Um, and so, it, you know, it was money that was being used to basically take someone's life. Um, and so it, 30 pieces of silver is about a month's pay worth anywhere from a hundred to $600 during that time. So they used it actually, the priests used it to buy something called Potter's Field or also known as Field of Blood. And it was used for, um, a burial plot. It was a burial plot for strangers, criminals, and the poor, um, or the unknown. And it's about a half mile South of Jerusalem, um, so they go and they do this. And what happens to Judas? He ends up hanging himself. Um, he was so unhinged. Um, the priest didn't want to look bad. So they made, um, the, the priest didn't want to look bad um, in regards to handling with Jesus and what to do. And so they made Pilate do it. Um, only the Romans, only the Romans could basically put uh, Christ to death. Um, and so we see that they, they send him over, um, it says in this book, Elisa says the Jews had to bring all political matters to the Romans. In other words, the Jews didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. Only the Romans could do that. And so they, they send him off to the Romans so that he can, can die. So the thing with Herod though, with Herod and like Pilate, they couldn't find anything punishable with Jesus. Um, they just, they couldn't have anything. They couldn't find anything that would even remotely equal a death sentence. Um, but he said, all right, you know what, let's just have him get beat up a little bit. Maybe that'll appease the people. And, um, and so they, they did, they, they beat him up and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but he did let the choose people choose after that. And they still wanted Jesus to die. They still wanted him crucified. And he said, hey, um, Pilate said, would you like for me to release to you a Jewish prisoner, one of your people, um, or would you like Jesus? And the, the guy in prison is Barabbas and, or Barabbas. And this particular guy was... Um, he had been in jail for quite some time. He was a notorious murderer. Um, and he thought surely they would not want this guy loose on the streets. Surely they'll take Jesus because, you know, the only thing they have an issue with him deals with their religion and their beliefs. It's not, you know, that big of a deal. And yet the, the, the priest and the people still said, no, crucify Christ. We want Barabbas. And so I've seen it during Easter time on social media a lot. Um, when people say I am Barabbas, that's me, you know, that, that is the fact that Christ came in and took the place of Barabbas and, and let him free when he shouldn't even be allowed to be out on the streets yet. Yet Jesus took his place so that he could go. And so that, that in itself is the gospel being played out. So with the crucifixion and with the beating, the, the beating of, um, of, of basically prisoners during this time from the Romans was just, just absolutely atrocious, atrocious. They, they, they took pleasure 
in in beatings and um and they used any types of tools possible that would latch onto the skin latch on like plunge itself deep into the skin and when they pull back the skin is ripped off um jesus lost a large amount of blood during this time um and the flogging that was done um would have caused deep deep wounds so the thing about crucifixion so he he's he's beat he's brought back they say no crucify him and so Pilate's like all right so they send him to be crucified on Golgotha Hill or Skull Hill and um you know the thing about like i said the the roman executioners the thing about it was that they just they took so much um joy into um and just making this the most i don't know horrific thing that you could ever watch so with crucifixion, it was a very shameful way to die. Um, usually, Roman citizens didn't get this type of treatment. This was only for slaves or disgraced sh- uh, soldiers, Christians later on, and foreigners and political activists. This is this would have been something that they would have gotten. Um, but usually, you were beaten or um, scourged prior, although women were not. Um, most of the time, you were stripped naked. Um, you were tied to a post, you were flogged on your back, your butt, your legs, um, and it causes deep, deep wounds, weakening the body and severe bleeding. Most of the time for a crucifixion like this, you would faint and then sudden death was very normal. Um, it was also, I looked, I researched this. It said that, um, you know, most of the time the people were forced to carry, the the crossbar across their uh, their shoulders and sometimes what they would do when they would have them walk to the crucifixion site with this on there the roman soldiers would have such a great time um just adding more pain and inflicting more pain sometimes i read they would cut off body parts like um like their tongue um or they would blind them um just to inflict more pain more pain also, um, I read that some of the executioners would have the victim's child strangled um, and tied around their necks so that they had to walk with their dead child hanging from their neck. Like this was horrific, horrific ways and shameful ways to die. This is not something that was just very like meek and mild. This was, this was the most inhumane way to treat someone and to, I, I just, I mean, I remember telling my life group, I'm like, I can't even imagine just the gut-riching pain of you're about to die and you're about, you're, you have all this physical pain going on, but then they go and they grab your child and they strangle your child and they tie them to your neck so that you can cross this, you can carry this crossbar on your back, but then also deal with the emotional and the, the, tr- just the physical trauma that you're going through seeing your dead child hanging from your neck as you're, as you're walking up. This was horrific. Um, once they got to the site, they were tied or nailed to the cross. Um, their feet were tied or nailed. Um, and with this, it could take three to four days to die. Um, and most of the time for the people, um, you were left there for, like I said, three or four days to die. And then most of the time what would happen would be uh, animals would come and they would come and eat um, on your body as it's just decomposing and, and staying there. So 
if you are as horrified as I am, here we have our Christ, you know, being crucified with this type of, this type of just horrific manner. And, but the thing about him was that he suffered this death just like this. Um, and it's, it's a crazy thing to even wrap our minds around that he went and he did that for us. And, um, it's just, it's, it's so when you put it in that perspective, it's just, it's gut wrenching and heart wrenching to think that he would go through something like that to feel all the pain for us so that we would not have to basically experience eternal separation from God. Um, but the thing about Christ was that his body was not left there three or to four days because they couldn't leave the bodies hanging due to Sabbath happening. You know, Passover is going on. This is a very important time and Sabbath is coming up. And so, um, they have to let him down. So, um, he, he did die. They, they did, um, check that they did pierce a, um, basically a sword in his side to check and make sure that he was, he was dead. There were no bones broken in his body. They were going to break, you know, typically what they would do is they would break the legs and then it would cause, um, them to die more quickly. But when they were going to do that, they checked him and they pierced his side and they saw that he actually was already dead. And so it does fulfill that scripture of, um, no bones would be broken. And what's amazing about this is that, you know, this had been prophesied. This had been spoken about years and years and years and years before this actually even happened. In fact, Angie mentions that in the book of Psalms, David writes about this, about uh, dividing my garments among them for um, my clothing. They cast lots. Um, also, um, just in Isaiah, it talks about the son of God was killed between two common criminals, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Um, and so it's just amazing how, um, how these prom- the other, these prophecies were fulfilled, um, long before Jesus was ever alive. Um, I also love how, um, Angie mentions that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it says the Passover lamb was always to be killed without breaking any of its bones. So just think about that, like the Passover lamb that was always given at sacrifice time. It was to have no blemish and then also no broken bones as well. And so here you have during Passover time, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. You know, he is known as the lamb of God and he is the ultimate sacrifice and his bones were not broken either. Um, So it's just amazing um, how this all plays out. Um, I love how Angie mentioned, she says, our job is not to get in between God and his timeless plan for salvation. Like if it's hard for you to believe, why would God allow this to happen to a son? This was an agreement and a plan between the father and the son. And, um, and so the son also willingly volunteered for this. Um, she says it's our job to only sit back and wonder and worship and believe that the one who tied this whole story together and into our timeline has done it because of that same passionate pursuit he's been showing us in scripture since the Garden of Eden. God comes, God bends low, God pursues his fallen people. Um, what I love also about this time is, um, and especially about the story, is that Jesus, his, ins- his inscription, so, you know, during that time when, 
when people were crucified, there was an inscription or just um, something, something written about the crime that they had committed. Um, and it was nailed to the cross. That way, as people walked by, they could see you know, what it, what crime it was, um, that was done and it earning you death. Um, and his crucifixion, um, his, his inscription was the King of the Jews. Um, and, and actually the Jews were really upset about that. They didn't want for, for him to even have that, um, that term be applied to him. Um, but Pilate wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, um, and they actually yelled for it to be changed. And Pilate said, what I've written is what I've written. And so Jesus was killed and died the exact, for exactly what he claimed and for exactly who he was. So some things about crucifixion was it was a very shameful way to die. And we've talked about this. It's a very shameful way to die. And um, it was very barbaric. Um, and so very barbaric. And so after... After they've checked for all the criminals, um, and and the other people who um who were being crucified that day, <clears throat> as soon as Jesus took his last breath, is mentioned that a darkness took over um the world. The darkness took over, and it was God's wrath, um that that took over during this time, um and it actually this is historians have looked into this and it says that it was actually an extraordinary eclipse of the sun on this day. Um, Angie mentions, they say the stars in heaven could be seen in the middle of the afternoon. The same stars that hung above Abraham, the stars that set the backdrop for a covenant that was now being fulfilled hundreds of years later, the sky was dark and the ground was trembling. So you have, um, the trembling of the earth, you have this darkness that's coming about and, um, the tabernacle um, and the temple that that was there, you had a veil that was that was in that building, and that veil was to separate the people from the holy of holies, where um, where it was where God God's spirit resided, and that veil was torn, meaning that there was no more separation between. Um, entering into into God's presence, it was no more need for that um, for that separation because Jesus made that sacrifice. He made it possible for people to be able to 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 be in the full presence of God um, instead of being separated um, from God. And it had been that way for hundreds and hundreds of, year, of years. So it was this, this veil, this curtain. It was torn in half um, during this time. And everything had been taken care of. Jesus had paid the ultimate um, sacrifice. And um, and so he, he passes away. They take him down. And um, Jesus is placed in a tomb. <clears throat> He's actually placed in... Um, the tomb of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, actually, I'm sorry, it was actually Joseph. Um, it was another guy named Joseph. Um, but Nicodemus is uh, someone that um, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and um, and and so he was part of that group that followed that legalistic way of, of the law of the Jewish law. 
and Nicodemus had, had and, and Nicodemus and Jesus had, had met um, and had talked actually in uh, the book of John, um, where Nicodemus is asking Jesus all these questions about who he is, and 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 then the show the chosen. Um, we see Nicodemus and Jesus having this conversation, and you can tell that Nicodemus is really stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's. He has followed traditional law, um, Jewish law and tradition, and for so long, he is like the top dog of, of, of following all of this. Um, he's very well known in the community for his position, but here you have Jesus coming and really turning everything on its head, and Nicodemus, you can see that he truly is starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's who, he's who he says he is, um, and so now, you know, Nicodemus has this, this hard position because not all the Jews believe that. Um, but Nicodemus took a stand. Um, he did take a stand um, for Christ. Um, as soon as Jesus died, Nicodemus um, with um, Joseph of, um, it was another Joseph in the area, they asked for um, his body and they placed him in um the rich man's tomb, which this also um, fulfills another prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, um, it says that the Messiah would make his grave with a rich man um, in his death. And so he was placed in this tomb, um, and um, he's placed there because they didn't have any place for him to go. Um, and so during this time, they, they place him there and with the Sabbath day approaching. So, so on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to do any form of work whatsoever. Um, there wasn't any time to prepare Jesus' body for, um, for burial. So during that time, um, people would prepare the body with spices and, and wrappings um, to preserve and to um, to take care of the body and, and prepare it for burial. But since Shabbat or Sabbath was coming up, um, there's no working, there's no traveling, there's no buying, cleaning, selling, working, nothing um, on this day. And so they were unable to do that um, for him. Um there was a massive stone that was placed in front of the tomb. Um, the Roman guards were placed there um, just because um, they didn't want the followers to come and, and pretend like Jesus had resurrected and then take the body. They, they, they had all these protocols um, in place. Um, but on the third day, on the third day, if you know the story of Easter, on the third day, um, the women came back to the tomb because they were unable to do it um, on the Sabbath. And they came back to prepare him for burial with the spices and all of that. And they find that Jesus is not there. Um, he, they see that the burial cloths um, are off to the side. Um, and, and actually what's really cool is um, there is a napkin that is placed over um, during that time, there was a napkin that was placed over the face of the person who had died. Um, it was part of the burial clothes. Um, and what's really interesting in scripture that you find is that the burial cloths that was, that was on the body were kind of off to the side, but the napkin was folded, um, very neatly off to the side. Um, I've seen, 
I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I've seen a, a post on uh, social media one time that talked about uh, why they think that they found that folded napkin there. Um, whether this is true or not, I do think it's a beautiful way to think about it, but um, it is said that in Jewish tradition and Jewish culture that when a person um, is at the table and they have their dinner <clears throat> and they have their dinner napkin there with them, if they get up to leave the table, um, they will just sit the napkin to the side um, to show that they're coming back. But if they get up and they're finished with dinner, they will fold the napkin and they... Um, but this folded napkin um, sitting off to the side um, was a signal that um, that they would be returning at some point. That they weren't. That the work was not completely. Um, the dinner wasn't completely finished, and that they would return one day. Uh, who knows that this post is true? But I think that that was definitely a beautiful analogy. If it is true, wow, that's amazing. But if it's not, then. Um, Somebody got really creative with that for sure. Um, so, um, it, Angie ends this chapter with talking about, you know, with Jesus resurrecting, um, and Jesus was around, you know, for 40 days, um, after, um, after he had resurrected, he was, um, with the people, um, during this time. And, and one thing that this last section of this chapter, Angie mentions all about doubt, doubting and struggling to believe and wanting proof. And I can fully relate to this section of the book because I think there are times where, you know, we're like, okay, yes, I understand that Jesus was a real person. I got that. Um, yes, I understand that Jesus, um, taught all these really great lessons and sermons and, and all of that, but you may struggle with the supernatural. And, and, and there are times where we just as human beings, we want to understand the supernatural and we can't because it's supernatural. It's not, it's not natural. Um, and so that's really hard sometimes to deal with that. And so we are not the first, if I can encourage you in this, we are not the first to deal with this. In fact, one of the disciples, Thomas, um, one of Jesus, one of his followers, um, he was doubting for sure. In fact, he is known now as the doubting Thomas. He was a loyal follower of Christ. He was a defender of Christ, but he also during this time was like, I will, I will never believe that Christ has resurrected. Um, and, and it actually says that, um, in John, in, in the book of John, it talks about where he says, unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So like uh, growing up, my mom was always like, never say never, you know? And so he says, I will never believe. Um, and you know, I just think that there are so many times where even me just as a human being, like we're looking for the proof and we're like, if I don't see the proof, if I don't see the evidence, there's no way I will believe. And instead, and I love this, instead of Christ coming back and resurrecting and just like letting Thomas have it or be like, are you serious, dude? Like you were one of my followers you, you know, you saw me heal people, you, you know, you, we spent all this time together in our ministry. How dare you doubt me and what I say? 
Jesus does not do that at all. He does not rebuke him, but he encourages Thomas. And we see that in the book of John chapter 20, verse 27, he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I just love that because, you know, um, he, he's, he shows him grace and he's like, he understands the human component of all of us. In fact, Angie says that we, some of us like Thomas, we're all wired to want proof um, of evidence of Jesus's life and death that we can hold up in front of others and say, see, this is something you can believe in. Um, but she says that, you know, God will always give us enough. Um, and, and we may have questions and we may have disbelief and that's okay. And I always, I always tell people that when you struggle with, um, just disbelief or just really struggling with, you know, under certain thing, understanding certain things in the Bible, I think that there's nothing wrong with asking questions and, and really just digging into the word, digging into research, digging into history to learn more. I think that that shows a, a hunger and an interest in the word of God. I think where we get in trouble is when we don't turn to the word of God and we don't turn to Christian resources to have our questions answered. Instead, we turn to maybe social media or we turn to influencers who may not have all of the word or research properly, um, properly, pro- properly explained. And so therefore then we get caught in this, this confusing, um, this confusing moment of trying to decipher what's real and what's not. And so I think that one of the best things that you can do is as you read the word of God, if you have questions about something, or if you're like, man, I just, I don't know how I feel about this. Take notes, like have a notebook or make a note on your app, on your phone, and and continue to just write down the actual verse and then be honest. Say, I am doubting this verse or I have a hard time believing this or why did this happen or do I really believe that this happened? And really just get raw with it. Um, And then go back and dig. Dig and look up information. And also, I highly recommend having a mentor, somebody that you can bounce these questions off of, um, but someone who, who knows the word of God and who is wise and is, and has been studying the word of God for years. I think that having a mentor is such a great thing to do. So I just love that, that, you know, Christ was gentle with him. Um, just very gentle with him and understanding that, you know, I understand that your doubts, I understand, you know, this is really hard to believe and this is supernatural. Um, but he asked Thomas to just, to just believe. Um, and so I think that that is beautiful, um, that we have, we have a God who shows that much understanding and that much grace. So that is the end of chapter 12. And here we are, we're quickly moving on to chapter 13. Now remember there are only 14 chapters in this book and you're probably sitting here thinking we're in the book of John and we have a lot more to go. And you are super correct. We do have a lot more to go. So here we go. Chapter 13 um, is titled Just Try Stopping Us Now, The Church. And so now we're moving past the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are labeled books of the Bible that are the gospel, um, which is just Greek. It's a Greek word for good news. Um, so it tells us the life of Christ. It tells us about his ministry and all the things that he's done. But the remaining books of the New Testament, it's proclaiming the good news. So the good news 
is the life of Christ, his birth, all the way through his his death and resurrection. But the rest of the New Testament is proclaiming the good news. So um, Angie lays out for us very explicitly what our job is as a Christian. Um, And you may have heard this term before. It's called the Great Commission. Um, The Great Commission, it's a biblical mandate. Um, And it comes from um, the book, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And it says, after Jesus' resurrection, um, his his followers gave an extremely important charge. And it's this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is called the Great Commission. It's a it's basically our job to go and tell everyone about Christ, to tell everybody, every race, every tribe, every nation, everywhere. Um, <clears throat> and it actually mentions in the Bible that uh, until that is done, until the word of God has been spread to to every um, place in the world, um, that is when Jesus is coming back, is when that word is spread um, to the ends of the earth. And so um, we need help doing this. And, and, and Christ knew that we needed help doing this. It's a really big job um, for them to do. And so they entered into... Um, they entered into being introduced to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have grown up in the South or if you've, you know, grown up in church, you probably heard it called um, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Um, And this can be, you know, I I feel like for me speaking, I think that, you know, we don't struggle with the idea of God and we don't really struggle with the idea of Jesus either because there's historical documents that he really was in fact a real person. I think where we struggle is the supernatural, but also I think that we also struggle with the Holy Spirit um, because I think that it has been done and it has been introduced and it has been um, abused in a lot of different ways to where people look at Christians and they say, you people are crazy. Um, and you probably see this all over social media all the time. I know I do. I see videos of people falling out on the floor, quote unquote, being slain in the spirit, um, mis misusing and abusing speaking in tongues, um, people being false prophets. We have seen, there's a lot. If you haven't seen, I'm sure that you will for sure see lots of people who do things in the name of the Holy Spirit or in the name of Christ, but they really are abusing um, this. So just open your mind here because I've had to learn how to open my mind as well because growing up as a Southern Baptist, we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. We talked about God and we talked about Jesus, but we did not really, I mean, we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit, but there was not a strong focus on it. So Jesus tells his disciples after his, uh, after he is, been resurrected. He tells them that he's sending, or before, excuse me, before his crucifixion, he tells them that, um, that he, that there, there will be a helper that comes. Um, in fact, it was at the last supper, Jesus tells them that it's important for them, the people to stay in the city. Do not leave the city because God is sending a helper to them and he can the people cannot receive the helper until um until he has left them so he is explicitly 
telling them about the Holy Spirit and they are like mind boggled. They have no idea what he's talking about. Well, during this time, we enter into the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you find the story of Pentecost. So like we've mentioned all throughout this book and all throughout this series, uh, the Jewish tradition and culture, they were some celebrating people. They have so many celebrations, so many holidays and festivals and things that they do. And one of these is Pentecost. And Pentecost, all that all that means is it's coming from the number 50. It, it basically means it's the 50, it's 50 days. And um, th- this goes back to um, the 50, di- you know, the number 50 being found in the book of, of, of Exodus um, and in the stories in the Old Testament. But Jesus was gone for, um, for 10 days after his ascension. So Jesus is resurrected. He hangs out um, for 40 days. And then 10 days later, remember, he's told the disciples stay in the city. 10 days later is Pentecost. So you have all of these people coming to Jerusalem um, and you have them coming in more specifically for the celebration. And they're all gathered in one place. Many of them may not speak the same language or even be from the same neighborhoods, but the Holy Spirit fell on them. So Christ has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And it is all, all, all in all, it is the spirit of Christ. Um, Christ is no longer with them in his physical body, um, but his spirit is being poured out on the people. Um, and so during, uh, this time, um, you see the first, um, example of people speaking in tongues also as a strict Southern Baptist. Um, that was one thing that totally wigged me out and I'm having to learn how to open my mind to that because speaking in tongues, um, speaking in a holy language, that is biblical. It is in the Bible. You cannot argue with that. I think what you could argue is the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit, and one of those being speaking in tongues. But I also think that there's a heavy focus on people speaking in tongues as well. I think that there's so much focus on that, and there's so many other gifts of the Spirit, including like discernment and prophecy and and, and all of that. But everybody usually picks on and picks out speaking in tongues. So we see that this is the first time that's happened and that the reason why was because many of the people were um, from different areas. They didn't speak the same language, but they all were able to understand um, the message of Christ and, and his story because they were all speaking in one language. They were all able to understand what was being said after the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. So the book of Acts, this just tells us about the first Christians um, in the early church. And actually in the book of Acts, um, this is kind of where the term Christian is introduced. Um, the word Christian back then was not, um, it, was not a, it was not a word or a, a term that was used um, in, in a very loving way. Christian meant little Christ, basically. Um, and it was, it was, a it was a mockery. It was a way of people mocking the disciples and the Christ followers and just calling them, calling them little Christ. And so that's where you get the word Christian from. So in the book of Acts, Luke is the person who wrote Acts. Um, and, um, 
so yeah, that's the book of Acts. So we fall, um, we actually see during the book of Acts, we see that um, there's a person that we come across and it is the person, um, the book of, I'm sorry, it is Paul. Um, now Paul originally, and Paul is one of one of the one of the bigger people of the Bible because he originally his name was Saul, um, and he was actually um, a persecutor of Christians. Um, he was he was there, you know, watching Christians being put to death, um, and he had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Um, and what's amazing is. Um, Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, you know, condemning me? And, and Paul and Saul at the time was like, who are you? I'm not condemning you. And he's like, but you're, you're hurting my people. Um, and then from that point forward, um, Paul, he's known as Paul in the rest of the new Testament. Um, he really gave his life up to Christ and really was just, um, really just a go-getter for the faith. So Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament in total. Um, and people were not open to Jesus and his message at that time. But um, like I mentioned, back whenever he was persecuting Christians, the very first martyr for the faith was a guy named Stephen. Um, and so the person who wrote 13 books of our Bible that we read and that we highlight and study, he was also cheering on for Stephen's death. Um but what's amazing about that is that, you know, after his encounter, his experience, not his knowledge per se of Jesus, but his encounter and his experience to Christ, um, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he received the Holy Spirit, he had, um, he had this revelational change about him. And so no longer was he going to be, and, and you know, people, it actually says in the Bible that people, People did not trust him immediately. People did not trust um, what he was doing, coming around and, and hanging out. Even the disciples were like, we are not, you know, I don't want to hang out with this dude. He was, he was condemning, you know, our people. Um, but he, he had a change and he became such a huge advocate for the faith so, um, Paul went through a lot of stuff. He went, he, he, he almost was, um, he was, he was beaten, um, for the faith. He was jailed. He was shipwrecked. He was arrested. He almost, um, he almost died. Um, and so he, uh, but he, he kept pressing forward and never did he ever write and say, you know, God, please release me from jail. But instead his prayer was, God, please use me in these situations to, to share you in whatever, in, in whatever situation that I'm in. Um, so there's some major themes in the books of book of Acts. The first one is, um, news and believers spread like wildfire and fast. So the news of Christ in his, in his ministry and his death and his resurrection, um, it spreads really, really fast. And, the believers, the number of believers just, um, just explodes. And then the second theme in the book of Acts is all about taking the faith to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles were the people who were not from Jewish descent. Um, but instead he's writing to them and telling them all about, Hey, you know, about Jesus and his ministry instead of all of the, 
um, instead of coming with a Jewish tradition and the Jewish cultures, he's just coming right to them with the gospel, with the good news. So Paul wrote letters to churches. So a lot of the books that you have in the New Testament, um, these are letters that Paul had written to these churches. So they're going out and these churches are, are coming alive and, and, and they're, they have, uh, the Christian faith is growing. And so he begins to write letters to these churches to help assist them in, and to keep going in the faith and it really helps show them the way of, um, being a Christian. Um, and so he also talks to them about the faith and the theology behind it. So you'll find that first and second Thessalonians, Galatians, um, these are all written to churches in Thessalonia and Galatia. So those letters are written to the people of those areas. And this is same for Corinthians to a church in Corinth. Um, Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote this to Rome. Um, and with the book of Romans, he really lays it out um, for them, just like meat and potatoes, like this is the way that it is because he was also a Roman citizen. Um, most of Paul's letters, a lot of the things that you read, he was actually enduring hard things at the time or jail. Um, and, and so it's just amazing to me that how does a person like Saul or Paul, how does someone who condemned other Christians and watched them die a death in Jesus' name, how does a person become that sold out? to Christ, like someone who was so against Christ. And then all of a sudden he, he's just sold out for, you know, making Jesus famous pretty much and just spreading him all over his news all over the world. I mean, it has, it has to be a God thing. It just, it's so amazing to see people's testimonies like that. Um, then you have the book of, um, Phil, um, Philemon, which was a letter from Paul to a friend who was a believer. You have first and second Timothy. This was, this was all about advice on being a good godly man. Um, second Timothy is actually Paul's dying words. It's his last will and his last te- testament. And the book of Titus was actually written to a minister. Um, and I, so the rest of those books are just all about encouraging people in the faith, helping guide them and showing them um, the, the things that they should be doing and not doing. But it, she ends this last chapter, um, the chapter 13 here. She ends it with, in the book of Second Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, um, she says that no matter what Paul endures for his faith, I mean, he stood strong for Christ and his faith. He never wavered. Um, he, 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 never, he never uh, let go of his faith. It says here that Paul, some of the last words that he has here on earth, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Um, And so Paul just has this amazing testimony just of... um, and and just a beautiful redemption story of he was one way and now he's a completely different other. So it it really is, um, an, an amazing testimony that he has. And so, 
yes, we didn't really like dig into each book. I mean, we just kind of like flew through those, but hopefully you have a generalized idea about the, what those books are, that there are letters written to different churches that, that were growing and, um, and hopefully you're able to see that with a fresh new perspective and fresh new eyes. So I cannot believe it. I know that I said that we were only going to do six podcast episodes, but we are going to wrap up this book with our last podcast episode in this upcoming series. Um, and hopefully it will come out very quickly right after this one. But it is called chapter 14. It's called The Big Finish. And this is going to cover the rest of our book, which covers the book of James, Hebrews, um, Jude, and then lastly, uh, First and Second, Third John, and the book of Revelation, which I know that the Revelation everybody has questions about. And what's amazing about this book is um, she she sums it up real quick in this book with the book of Revelation. I know everybody's got so many questions about the book of Revelation and in times. Um, so, um, we are, we've got one more episode in the series. I hope that you have enjoyed this series. I hope that this series has helped you just open your eyes to, and have a fresh new perspective of the word of God. And it has made it more, um, approachable and just made it easier for you to to be excited and pumped up about the Word of God. Um, so we have one last bonus podcast episode, and then we are finished with this series. Guys, as always, continue to be raw, be authentic, and be you.